0: Hi, this is Steve Nerlich from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is... Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 7, Some Good Old-Fashioned Astronomy. Sometimes, Dear Cheap Astronomy episodes take us to some unexpected places. But there are still a few times where we just go back to the basics. In this episode, you'll hear what cheap astronomy knows about astrophotography, as well as what cheap astronomy doesn't know about astrophotography.
1: Dear Cheap Astronomy, Astrophotography, is it just a money pit? Or is it good science? One of the most frequently asked questions that hardcore astrophotographers have to face is... Come on, all those colours and those sparkly points of light? That's just filters and stuff. What does that galaxy, gas cloud or messier object you have photographed really look like? Astrophotography is an area where the line between what's flim-flam versus what's scientific observation can sometimes become a little unclear. But let's start by saying that most hardcore astrophotographers are meticulous in documenting all the technology that underlies the image that they produce. Whether or not you accept that the image that they developed is real, you will know exactly how they got it and you will be able to reproduce that same image. So, this much of astrophotography is definitely good science. And we have to think about the meaning of the statement, does it really look like that? Perhaps what we are asking is, would that object look just like it does in this photo? If I had a warp drive starship, that could fly me to the point where the same galaxy, gas cloud or messier object would fill my field of view when I looked out through the starship's viewscreen. To answer that question, we firstly have to consider whether your eyes are going to be fully dark adapted when you take that first look. If they are not, then no, you probably won't see all the colours and the intricate detail that astrophotographers have worked hard to bring to prominence when you first view their photographs. Also, we should probably check when you last cleaned your starship's viewscreen. And even then, what something really looks like will vary depending upon whether you are myopic, have macular degeneration, are colorblind, or maybe just had a few too many drinks last night. What something really looks like is a very subjective concept. Generally, astrophotographers aim to give you the most unsullied image that they can achieve with the technology they have at their disposal. So, yes, this may involve using filters and the stacking of multiple images, so as to enhance the brightness and detail of a particular image. But arguably, the photograph that they give you really is a genuine representation of what someone would see after being blindfolded for 30 minutes and then wearing their prescription glasses while looking through a brand new state-of-the-art view screen that had just been fitted on their starship. Something that is only real under a very particular set of circumstances is still real, and if you document what those particular set of circumstances are, then you are doing good science. But one example of where the reality and the scientific relevance of astrophotography starts becoming unstuck is when astrophotographers use the equivalent of what terrestrial photographers call star filters. A star filter slightly diffracts a point source of light to give it artificial rays, usually four of them, extending outwards from the point source. This looks pretty, I suppose, and it appeals to the collective cultural norm of drawing stars with sticky out bits, like you see on any national flags that include stars, for example Syria, China or the USA, just to name a few. But no. Out in your starship with your prescription glasses, dark adapted eyes, and a brand new view screen, you are not going to see stars with sticky outfits. So perhaps this use of star filters is not altogether good science. It's just photography.
0: And thanks, Julia. Of course, astrophotography can be an expensive hobby, so you might not be surprised to hear that it's not something I know all that much about as this follow-up question will now demonstrate. Dear Cheap Astronomy, You were criticising the use of star filters in astrophotography, but are you sure you aren't just looking at diffraction spikes? Well, yes, of course, I was just looking at diffraction spikes, and really, you could have just said, You got it wrong! This story starts a while back, When we were trying to answer a question on astrophotography and Julia narrated something that I wrote,
1: which was... A star filter slightly diffracts a point source of light to give it artificial rays, usually four of them extending outwards from the point source.
0: Well, no, they probably weren't star filters. I mean, there are a few artistically-minded astrophotographers who actually do use filters to give stars an artificially spiky appearance, but for the most part, what you are seeing are diffraction spikes, a common artefact of reflecting telescopes. Many people, in purchasing their first reflecting telescope, probably wonder why the secondary mirror and the struts that hold it in place in the middle of the telescope tube don't disrupt the path of the light collected by the telescope tube. Well, in fact, they do disrupt that light, but just by a tiny, tiny bit. In a standard Newtonian reflecting telescope, there's an open telescope tube into which the light falls. This light is then reflected off the primary mirror at the far end of the tube, as well as being concentrated by the parabolic shape of that primary mirror. This concentrated light is reflected back up towards the primary mirror's focal point, which is where the secondary mirror is traditionally positioned. The secondary mirror's role is to reflect that concentrated and focused light beam off to its collection point, which, on an expensive telescope, might be a CCD, or even a spectroscope, but on a cheap telescope, might just be your eyeball. But in any case, the secondary mirror does sit smack in the middle of the telescope tube, and you need to support it with struts. So this whole structure, the secondary mirror and the struts, sits smack in the middle of the path of light that enters your telescope but remember that the light entering a telescope originates from a point source like a star. So the light that enters your telescope is much like the spherical ripples from a pebble dropped into a pond. If you put an obstruction in the way of such an expanding spherical ripple, it may be momentarily disrupted, but usually the expanding sphere reforms into a new sphere beyond that point of obstruction, thus rendering that obstruction almost invisible to a distant observer. Hence, the secondary mirror and the supporting struts, of which there are generally four, do become largely invisible in a reflecting telescope, except at extreme magnifications. It is at those extreme magnifications that very bright light sources will take on diffraction spikes, generally four of them, because there are generally four supporting struts holding the secondary mirror. Diffraction spikes are most commonly seen in bright foreground stars, being stars in our galaxy, when a powerful reflecting telescope is working to observe distant galaxies in the background. So the light from the foreground stars suffers from a degree of what we call spherical aberration at very high magnifications. Meaning that rather than looking like a point of light they develop a circular haze. And that circular haze is channeled into four spikes by the distorting effect of the four struts that hold your secondary mirror in place. And so... Real stars do take on the appearance of the spiky pretend stars that we put on national flags and on Christmas trees. Ironically, people have become so used to this effect that some refracting telescope owners actually do use filters to introduce artificial diffraction spikes into their astrophotographs. So Cheap Astronomy's first answer was still correct to that extent. And thanks me. So, there you go. Sometimes getting things wrong is as good a learning experience as getting things right, as long as you do admit you are wrong, and then try and work out why. And that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a burning space science question or you do just want to tell us where we've gone horribly wrong, just write to cheapastro at gmail dot com. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Nalek. Bye.